0: Morgan, welcome.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: It's really great to see you. Thanks for doing this.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: So those of you who are regular uh, listeners or viewers will notice something's a little different here. Um, we've got Morgan Polikoff from USC. I'm going to introduce him in a sec. Jed is overseas uh, on a fantastic uh, family trip. And so Morgan, you know, we we can't do this show without a Californian. So Morgan uh, gr- gratefully agreed to uh, step in and, and pinch it. So before we get into it, though, Morgan, I was hoping, um, you know, for, for the wonky folk uh, crowd, talk a little bit about uh, what you do now and a little bit your background in education.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I'm a professor at USC in the Rossier School of Education. I study, uh, for a long time, I've studied standards-based reform policy. So, um, you know, going back to the No Child Left Behind era and then Common Core, I wrote a book on that topic in 2021 called Beyond Standards. And uh, then, another thing that I do is I'm kind of like a you know, quote unquote, public intellectual. And so over time, that's evolved in various ways. But one thing that I do a lot of these days is I look at public opinion on education. So I've directed some state and nationally representative surveys focused on education policy and and since Covid as well. I've co-directed the education portion of something called the Understanding America Study, and we've really tracked American families' educational experiences since Covid. So, um, so yeah, I pay a lot of attention to public opinion and and public, uh, uh, you know, what's going on in education policy around the country.
0: Yeah, and I should add, Morgan's a fantastic Twitter follow. So if you want to, uh, um, or I guess what do we say now? An X. Follow-up.
1: I mean, it's down the two. There's nothing left there anyway. But sure.
0: Um, yeah, but you're still. I mean, Morgan. If you want to follow this work, and we're going to get into some of the public opinion stuff today, and and, and Morgan's great. I don't know. Are you on any of the other like? There's all the other. Yeah, I mean, I have.
1: I made an account on Blue Sky. The problem with Blue Sky is it's all academics, which is um, a little bit boring because academics are boring. So the spice of, you know, the spice of Twitter, right, the journalists and the policy wonks and the D.C. people and then the random loons, you know, you just don't get that when it's all professors, so.
0: I think yeah, it's a little bit. I've been thinking about it. It's like, you know, like the problem in the Republican primary is like there's too many alternatives. And so they can't like unite around an alternative to Trump. Yeah, yeah, I feel yeah. Like It's the exact same problem in social media. Now there's just like all these other platforms, but none of them have achieved critical mass yet. And so yeah. like Twitter X, you know, sort of just limps along because it's, yeah. it, it it's, it's the only one that still has like any kind of a critical mass.
1: And I think the reality is that there's never going to be a perfect replacement for it. And we all just have to get used to that. And so, you know, those of us who really loved Twitter and its heyday, and I am certainly one of them, um, you know, it, it is a, it is a loss uh, that that uh, this platform seems to have been destroyed for, as far as I could tell, virtually no reason.
0: Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to muddle through without a place we can all go in the public square and, and yell at each other uh, right. 20, 24-7. Um uh, so before we get into the the stuff you know we'll are gonna jump in on some of these big opinion questions particularly the stuff with parents but I'm always just interested um and this is something I've never asked you before so I'm genuinely curious like what was your experience in school like like what was your like you know growing up where did you grow up and what was your relationship with school
1: um you know I was really fortunate my um uh my parents moved to a town called hinsdale which is a suburb of chicago um, right before i was born Um, well-regarded public schools so i went to great public schools you know k through 12. and you know i mean i had the sort of typical high achieving kid experience in schools right i was like always the teacher's pet i was i did really well on tests everything kind of came easy to me um I, i was very fortunate you know that the school system was set up to reward People with my particular skill set, um, and uh, and went to undergraduate then at a public university at the University of Illinois, and started to learn in my education program there about some of the inequities that, frankly, I was just too naive and unaware to really learn um, when I was younger about our education systems. Right. So you know, I lived in a bubble, and and I I, I didn't realize it at the time. Certainly now I do, um, but I think you know what. What that experience really taught me is um, and then some of my other experiences, you know, going into classrooms as a student teacher or doing research in schools was just like how unbelievably unequal the system is and how, you know, the many, many ways that it's stacked against, um, you know, kids from low income families or kids, uh, you know, black and brown kids. And so that's really been a a motivating um, factor for me um, over
0: the years. And then what brought you to California is that USC. That's what. Yeah, yeah. So I so I
1: did my PhD. I started at Vanderbilt and then I finished it at Penn because I followed my advisor who had moved. And then uh, yeah, and then I got this job at USC. It's the only real full time job I've ever had in my life. Um, And uh, fourteen years later, here I am. So
0: um, all right, so fantastic. And you're in that broad bucket of people whose school was like very validating, and it was a place you enjoyed you enjoyed being. And so. You, you is is that that's what I heard you say uh, absolutely I mean I will say that there were you know there were some
1: small things right so like I was gay and I knew that I was gay in high school and this was a different time it was the like uh what late 90s and we weren't quite there yet in terms of like what public schools were interested in doing to support gay kids and so some of that experience certainly has uh you know has affected me and the way I think about how schools should support LGBT youth. But um, but yeah, no, overall, I mean, just uh, really extremely fortunate with my K-12 experience.
0: Well, let's come back to that on on the supporting LGBT kids and, and what that looks like. But just start like with this broad question, like, and it's, it's an impossible question because there's, you know, over 50 million kids and, and their families. But what is the broadly speaking post-pandemic, like, what's the same with the relationship with schools and what's different now uh, with with the parent uh, family sort of relationship with, with, with schools?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think what I would say is it sort of um, put into very stark relief, the sort of heterogeneity to use a very wonky term in the system in all its different forms. Right. So one thing that I think that we learned was on average, um, and I think we could all agree on this, right? On average, kids learn somewhat less than they would have if they had been in school in person. But actually, there was a big distribution there, right? And some kids actually did just fine in online learning. And when you talk to their parents, they'll tell you they did just fine. And, and even, you know, yes, on average, there's been a test score decline. But for lots of kids, it's much smaller than that, or there's been no decline at all. And for lots of kids, it's been much bigger than that, right? So it really exacerbated things i think socially as well right some kids absolutely thrived in the online setting they didn't what school was not a welcoming place for them uh they were bullied or they were just uh introverted i mean we hear this all the time when we talk to people and th- they liked being online right and and other kids it was a total disaster right there were kids who needed that social interaction and so so I, think, so I think it so i think it exposed that variation i think it it also exposed the variation in in the ways that schools were responding to things right you know in those early days it was it was like it really highlighted the local control issue i mean to, to someone like me who pays a lot of attention to and thinks about that all the time right like um states, a lot of states, you know, states weren't really giving guidance to schools about what was going on or what decisions they should make. You had 13,000 school boards making these armchair decisions about, you know, health and masking and vaccines and stuff that they, and and even school reopening. And so it just highlighted, I think in many ways, all the dysfunctions in the system and, uh, and really, you know, then it, it, it just like crystallized, um, those in, in a number of different ways. And so, what I, th- what I sit, think that you see is that, you know, overall, people actually think that the school system did okay during COVID. I mean, if you, if you, there are surveys that ask parents about that, and, and by and large, the school systems get decent marks. Um, but there's, there's that 10, 20% who thinks it was terrible. And that's because I think it was everyone had such different experiences. And for some kids, what was acceptable. For other kids, was a disaster, and all that variation was actually within school, right? All that variation was actually within school, not necessarily between schools, right? So, um and it's, it's. I think it's. So that that that's my sort of high level take. Was some of that
0: politics? Was there like a in in some place where like a social desirability bias around? Because it became. I thought one of the things I thought was interesting. You said like all these schools, these thirteen thousand, were trying locally to make these decisions. And then at the same time, what was happening was this like incredible nationalization of COVID, and you know Donald Trump was having those crazy press conferences every day, and people were looking for like to to, to national solutions to these local problems, and and in that context, obviously it got political very fast. Yeah. Um. So do you think some of this also in terms of the way people respond to what they say is there's just like a, you're you're, you're which team are you on, and so there's sort of a social desirability bias around like how you perceive this and what you're willing to sort of look the other way on to some
1: extent. I mean, so I would say this, I think if you're talking about parents, I think less so than if you're talking about general citizens. Right. And and one thing that I have noticed recently, I would say, in some of the opinion data of various kinds is that there's a divergence between parents, people yeah. who have a stake in the system and people who really don't, or don't have kids in the system right now. I think for parents, when you talk to them, um, whether it's interviews or surveys, you just sit down and have a conversation. They they can be very frank about how COVID went for their kids. They know what worked and what didn't. If they're going to be critical of the system, they're going to be critical of the system. And I think that that's true pretty much whether they're Democrats or Republicans. Um, although there are, I think we're listen. We're all affected by partisanship to some extent, even those yeah, of yeah. us who would like to pretend that we're not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that's more acute? I mean, there's always been a gap. You know, you ask parents to grade the schools. You ask, you know, non-parents that community to grade the schools. I mean, that gap has always existed to some extent. Do you think it's it's more pronounced just because education has become like become, a, again, like more of a like discussed political issue? I, I would say so. I mean, I think, listen, I think especially on the right, I
1: think that there has been a a frankly overt effort to drive a wedge between parents and the public school system i mean you know chris rufo said it on twitter right so uh so there's no real surprise there it's not controversial for me to say that and i think that to some extent that has been successful right so they've tied um you know some pretty politically unpopular things to public schools in a way that clearly has driven i think especially people who don't actually have kids in the school and therefore can't see the contradiction no. between what's being said and what's actually happening um have, has driven a lot of that uh sort of negative partisanship but you know I'm sure there are examples of it coming from the left too I'm sure
0: you know I mean talk, talk more about that because it seems like you there's like two buckets there's the like you know kids are using litter boxes kind of stuff which is you know is just absurd and and but like you know goes around but then there's like this other box of issues that actually are like policy issues that are being debated and and so people and and people are going to be on different sides of that so go go a little deeper on that because like there's definitely some wedge issues being but there's also like there's just a lot of issues suddenly in play on schools yeah I think that's right and
1: I think that you know one thing that is happening these days right is that a lot of it seems like virtually every issue gets sort of like immediately gets it attached to partisan valence that you're supposed to feel about it in a particular way right so you know one example could be um which i said i didn't want to talk about but the california math framework right which has been a which has gotten a, a particular partisan valence on it right where You know, folks from the right are saying that the math framework is watering down expectations and kids aren't going to get to calculus and it gets tied up in this Republican Democrat thing. Although there are plenty of people who are Democrats and liberals and, you know, and racial, you know, racial justice advocates who also express concern about it. And um, so that's just an example of the ways in which these things get sort of tied up pretty quickly. But I think we're kind of regardless of the topic, right. There's lots of other examples, you know, I mean,
0: something I've noticed is just in Virginia, like everything gets put through a partisan lens, even when it's not, because that's just now the frame that everybody brings to it. Right. And so like, if the state board has a split vote, like, it's just reported as it has to be a partisan split when often there's a split vote, but it's split across like lines of who appointed, uh, you know, governors, whatever party appointed particular members. And that's been really interesting to me, but like that, that's just lost. It's just assumed that if it's split, it's going to be split on partisan lines. And I think you see that with like a lot of things, the way it's consumed now.
1: Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, and I'm not a political scientist or anything like that, but my understanding is,
0: you yeah. play one on Twitter,
1: so it's all right. <laughs> that that like the salience of political identity is huge and growing, right? And so, th- so these kinds of things happen. I mean, the, uh, people attach. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a it's just a a very meaningful thing to people. The partisanship, you know, this partisanship and the partisan identity in a way that didn't used to be so much, right? That like in yeah. the olden days, you might have had neighbors and you didn't even know what their partisan identity was, or. Maybe, or maybe you voted for people of different parties, but you were actually quite similar on issues. And these days, it's like everything gets split right on partisanship. And then also, I think there's this view that, like, if you're on the wrong side, you're a bad person, which also, you know, uh, is it's just really toxic. I mean, it's terrible.
0: Yeah, it is. And what do you think is the effect of that? Because we're seeing that in the data as well. We're seeing there's two things one, voters are indicating that they're more willing to subsume their own education preferences to larger political and and partisan concerns and so that creates a problem for like issues like charter schools and school choice and so forth and then the second thing which is sort of very related is just an increasing amount of just preference falsification where people are saying stuff that they don't actually think and there's been some interesting work on that but they the in they, they are staying with the in group uh because of their other political preferences like first of all do you think those things are happening to a meaningful degree and like if so what does that mean for I mean you do study education what does that mean for education policy making if we're in sort of a house of mirrors environment like that or a political house of mirrors I guess
1: you know it's a it's a good question I mean I think at the same time I think that we shouldn't overstate the extent to which all of these trends are permanent or that things can't happen rapidly. I mean, I think, you know, one of the sort of taken for granted, so I'm, I'm dodging your question, because I don't have a good answer for it. But I think one of one of the sort of taken for granted um, views of American politics in the last couple decades is is about racial demographics in particular, right. And so like that black and Hispanic voters are Democrats. And I think clearly they have been in, in, in national elections. But also, I think that you know recent election results have showed that black and hispanic yeah. voters are can be convinced to vote for republicans and 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 especially that 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 those groups are not a monolith by any stretch right that hispanic voters in certain regions look very different from hispanic voters in other regions that there are that there are effective angles for peeling off those voters and that culture issues can sometimes be effective in that regard and um so so you know I think there's this sort of view that everything only heads in one direction. And I don't believe that. I think that that things can change very rapidly. You know, I mean, no one would have predicted Trump or that or that Trump would have had such enormous long tails, you know, even though he's been indicted so many times by now. Um, And and he's going to continue to have tails, even if he goes to prison or even if he gets elected president again. Right. Like no one could predict that
0: yeah yeah no i think that i think that's right there is and and like it but it is interesting like i i couldn't you you couldn't help but miss in education circles in 2020 like just no one was appreciating that like the one group of voters that trump you know um wasn't making inroads with and this is what you know you saw this clearly the exits was was white men right other groups he was making inroads and because politics is it's it's complicated and to your earlier point, we've gotten into these very reductionist political frames and you're seeing this like a real liability for for Biden going into 2024 is, will there be an erosion of support um, uh, among minority voters? Do you think education is playing a role in that?
1: I don't know. I, I mean, I think that there are lots of barriers to education being sort of a salient national political issue. I just think uh you know what even are the national I mean what even are national education policies what role does the federal government play in on education issues I think the just the vast majority of people are making decisions on a lot of other things before they would even come to education you know abortion I think would be one that like clearly democrats want to have high salience I think the economy's one that republicans you know want to have high salience Uh, The war. I mean, there's a war in Israel that just started last week. And who knows what impact that could have. His age. I mean, there's just so many issues to me that come way before education. So is it possible that there are some marginal voters who that really affects their vote, I guess. But as someone who studies education and cares a lot about education, I think it will be really wild to base your vote for president on their education views.
0: They used to ask a question, the post used to ask a question in their polls and they stopped doing it, it was too bad. It was They basically would ask you if you were gonna vote on a single issue, like would this issue be it? And education was always around 10%. So about oh. 10% of voters said, and then you looked at some other issues like guns, abortion, like much higher percentage of voters were like, I would not vote for a candidate who didn't share my position on this particular issue. Right. It was only 10% on education. It was always a soft, um, It was always a soft issue, but just backing up, I mean, like Hispanic Americans and black Americans are more conservative culturally as voters. Again, like in our sector, that doesn't show up so much um, uh, in terms of the professional class, but just overall, like that is it. And our sector is way to the left of, of the median, obviously. Like, so do you think like, I mean, some of this stuff, it just seems like, and we're seeing some evidence on this, you know, abortion is obviously a millstone for the Republicans that they haven't figured out how to deal with yet. But on some of these other issues, it seems like there's a way to make inroads with more culturally conservative voters on on, on a number of these issues. I think, I think
1: so. I think certainly they're trying. Um, you know, and I mean, you can see this in the sort of edge case scenarios that Republicans like to talk endlessly about, especially with regard to trans issues, which I think is like, you know, the case where public opinion is probably the softest. Um, what do you and mean by softest? Un, 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 unpack what you mean by that. I just mean in terms of what the public actually believes about trans mm-hmm. people and what they support. I mean, uh, it, not just in schools, but in general. I think there's, I think, I mean, first of all, a lot of people just don't understand what it is. And second of all, I think that, you know, like with, you know, like with gay rights, which took a very long time for there to be majority support for gay rights, right? That didn't happen until like, what, the 2000s? The last decade. Yeah, yeah right. Um, uh, And, it, you know, and it took ages. And I mean, you know, we were perverts and pedophiles for a very long time. And then all of a sudden, now we're not right. And, you know, and uh I think with trans is just another group that um, I think often gets lumped together with gay for politic, for lots of reasons, right? We're sexual minorities in various ways and we have, I think, some similar issues. But I think, um, you know, it's not obvious that just because a majority of people supports gay marriage means that a majority of people, people supports all different varieties of trans rights. And I might personally support all of those varieties of trans rights, and I do. But I think that, you know there are these edge cases that people like to bring up, you know, at, you know, young, uh, con, um, uh, what's the transitioning for youth, for kids who are prepubescent, right? That that would be an example or sports teams, girls sports teams, God, how much are we talking about girls sports teams for what are probably like 10 cases in the entire United States, right? And so these kinds of issues where I think, yeah, they probably can appeal to to, to people with more small
0: C conservative values yeah, let's stay on that for a second because i I do like what the thing that has struck me, the the gay rights movement picked like very attractive valence topics. So marriage, like it was basically, look you're not losing anything here, but why shouldn't people have, be able to marry whomever they want? You sort of, you, to your earlier point, that issue evolved very quickly. I mean, Obama was opposed to gay marriage yep. when he ran for president in 2008, but it evolved. But it, it like, it made intuitive sense to people um, and started to enjoy the strong support it enjoys now. Cause it was just like, well, you're not losing anything. And why shouldn't people have access to this to this right? And the interesting thing on the trans issues with schools is it's really difficult issues. So we, you know, we've picked the two big ones are this issue of should schools conceal transitions from parents, which polls absolutely terribly. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've seen the polling, and then sports. And it's like these are not necessarily. Meanwhile, like 70 percent of people say you shouldn't. Ha- there should be anti discrimination policies in place to protect trans people and trans kids. Like that's like a you know a strong majority position right now. But instead, like the targets have become these like very divisive issues where the public's not there. And the case can actually, in my view, be, be hard to make. The case, the case of athletics is a tricky one at the level of like really elite athletics. Yeah. Um, and it's like it's like they've, they've, they've good, successful movements pick really smart targets. Right. And like Martin Luther King was like brilliant as a strategist on picking really, really smart targets. Gandhi. Did that. And they've picked like some unpopular targets, which are not only to your point, making it toxic, just are also making it like politically just throwing up headwinds. Do you, I mean, do you see it like that? Um. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, there's, it's clear
1: that, as you say, right, that movements pick targets and some targets are, are, you know, are, are better and worse from the standpoint of being defensible, I think, to the general public and, You know, and in terms of where support is headed in terms of like appeals to fairness and people's basic values. Absolutely. Um, You know, and some of these issues, I think, are are legitimately tricky. Right. I mean, both of those issues that you raised are legitimately tricky as an as a gay man myself. I can say that I was out to friends in high school and I was not out to my mother. And if my teachers had taken it upon themselves to tell my mother, that would have been bad and very traumatic, even though my mom is fine and wonderful, right? And like came around and, but I was not ready for that. And I think that that would be a disaster, right? And so it, but on the other hand, I understand the other side of the argument, right? What sounds like concealment you know could be seen by the educators as they're protecting the
0: interests of kids of, uh, and there's they're, can they're let just me ask, can I ask you a really question help. yeah i pre- and look i first of all, i appreciate you being so candid on this and and sharing like you you've twice now shared like real you know personal aspects of your life like is part of i like i don't think most people support a policy of sort of outing a kid so finding out like morgan might be gay we should tell his parents But the issue is, like, are schools going to actively transition kids, like, give them counseling, things like that? And, like, it seems to me part of what's happened as these issues have gotten more and more um, toxic and heated up is, like, just that gray area that schools operate in, which is not just about gay kids. It's about a lot of stuff that kids are doing as adolescents Mm -hmm. that schools are kind of aware of. but. Not necessarily formally aware, like we because some schools went way over the line in terms of respecting the rights of families in that space. We've now like shrunk the room for discretion. It's become like a much more freighted conversation. Whereas before, you you just wanted a little, you just, you, you just wanted a little bit of space. So that was like a, that was like a healthy thing. Do you? I mean, do you? Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, uh, as
1: I said. And I, and I believe this, there's just not an answer here that's gonna satisfy everyone. And, uh, and I do think that you're right that with the sort of, in a, it, you're right in an extremely obvious, but nonetheless worth saying way, which is picking out positions that people really don't like on average, and then you know forcing uh, conformity to those positions. And if you don't agree with those positions that you're a bad person and a heretic, that is not a good strategy. And I think, as you know, and I have, I I can tell you many times people have come up to me and said things about, you know, very progressive people have come up to me and said things about trans issues in schools that they're uncomfortable with that they would not say aloud. Even you know, I mean, even I'm having a little bit of un- discomfort about having this conversation with you because I'm thinking that um, that someone might take a sentence out of context and use it to attack me. And, uh, and you know, that's just the reality of the situation. And and I'm aware of what I'm saying all the time.
0: Yeah, no, it is. And it's, and again, cause it's toxic and it's like this game of gotcha and like you would assume people like, I mean, I start from a place of like, I think like we should champion both sort of freedom and inclusion or like two very, and our public schools should, should, should model that. But you're right. It's very, um, Uh, It's just very freighted and hot. And it, it, and then it's hard to, I I don't see how we solve this. If we keep having these conversations where it's like, you know, people send you an email, but like, don't tell anyone I said this, or I actually agree on this, but I can't say it. Like, like we, like we, we have to just get back to more of a culture of like people. I mean, and there, and we should be clear. There are some people in this debate who are not well-intentioned. There are some people who like I I would characterize are like haters. They're not like, they're not people who are just like I don't think schools should conceal things from parents, and but we should also you know protect these yeah. kids. they are people who go like much further, but like a lot of the people in the debate, I think are are reasonable, well intentioned, but it, you can't. How do we possibly, without a more healthy culture of free expression, work through as you just said, are like really complicated questions, right?
1: Yeah. No, and I mean I think that you know to some extent I would say what we need are some good models, right? We need models of policies and practices that, you know, that, that bring people together rather than dividing them, that, that you know, that are broadly supportive, but do protect the interests of children. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, these are very difficult questions, right? And yeah. so, but I, I do think we need some of that, right? Rather than you know turning you know calling something a book ban or saying that you're trying to indoctrinate children sort of both of which are kind of not really true most of the time right like what is a reasonable yeah. policy on like what should a history curriculum include in terms of you know the rep- you know the contributions of people of color right. the contributions of women and lgbt individuals you know all kind all these difficult conversations we need models right that we can react to that are
0: real You know, what's crazy, it goes to this thing, like if you get, I I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, Virginia's uh, high school curriculum now on both sort of the gay rights movement, and then like some of the legal cases, particularly Obergefell is actually really strong on this. But because it's Virginia, nobody like everybody, for your point, everybody's so in their corners, right? Right. People just uh, assume a set of things, which brings me like, I like the work you do I think like one model is just how do we get back to analyzing things sort of as they are, not necessarily the rightness and wrongness, but with public opinion, just being like, here is the landscape, here is what people think, here is the political behavior we're seeing without immediately getting it freighted with like who's right or wrong or what we believe. I feel like we've lost the ability just to say, hey, you know what, 20% of people think this. And you may think that they're the correct 20% or they're the wrong 20%. You may not have a strong opinion, but it's, we, we can't even get to like, it's 20%. We, we, we immediately like, so talk about that. And like in your own work, analyzing public opinion, how that shows up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, I think it's actually a much bigger problem than you raise. I think with pretty much the whole social sciences, um, that, a large proportion of people in the social sciences in general, and in education research in particular, come to research with the answer that they want already in front of them, right? That they know what they want the research to find. And it's just impossible to believe that that doesn't, you know, I mean, that shapes the questions you ask, that shapes your interpretations of the data, It shapes whether you even would share results that run counter to, you know, your conclusions. And, and this is not just a left problem, although I think it, You know certainly the overwhelming majority of people in education research are left um i am quite left and i am to the right of most people that i know in my field um but it's a right problem too and you can see that on you know i mean school choice people who who's conveniently every single study they've ever published on school choice has a positive effect right so like it's it's not hard to find these things Um, Or you
0: move the goal, or you move the goalposts. Yeah, absolutely. Suddenly the thing about two weeks ago was like the most important thing. Suddenly it's a whole new. Right. It's not about
1: test scores. It's about parent satisfaction or whatever thing. Yeah. So listen, I'm one of these old timey people who believes in like trying to be objective and trying to get to the truth, which I think some people, you know, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about whether there is a truth to, uh, to seek but um but i mean i think the reality of the you know i think to go back to the same example of gay rights right like how was gay rights how did that happen in a very short time you know i mean it it was a long time but then it was a short time right and you know when i was a kid when i was in high school like being gay was still bad and within 10 years that was not the case anymore right and how did that happen through through you know Pu- through public figures making statements, through people coming out of the closet, coming, yeah. coming out of the closet through, Man. I think media had a huge role, tr- you know, television and, and movies, and, and lots of other things too. Um, and I think that, but it's important to understand where people are for lots of reasons. I mean, at, at its most basic level, I want Democrats to win elections. And I think that you have to understand where your policy positions are supported and opposed where they're winning you votes and losing you votes. And so to know the reality of how people view issues related to controversial topics in the curriculum, which is a report that we put out last year and we're doing another survey, it's in the field right now. Um, is really essential, right? You know, I I think as a kid, again, as a gay kid growing up in public schools, it would have been great to have positive role models about LGBT people in the curriculum. I think people actually are pretty supportive of that for high school kids, but they're really not for elementary school kids. And even for
0: role models, even I think just- the
1: contributions of LGBT people is one topic that can work in elementary schools. But you know, in general, other kinds of LGBT-related topics like the you know same-sex couples or uh, you know children with same-sex parents, people are squishy on that for elementary kids, and so and that's a challenge. Um, and and I think that that will change over time. And I think that there are probably more specific examples that you could come up with that people will be comfortable with, even if the, they're not comfortable with the broad category. But yeah, absolutely, it's important to know these things um, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to drive change. And I think, and just also, it's just important to know the truth of things. It's a, it's a good way for me as a ga- as a as a, a a gay college professor in Los Angeles who's in the most ridiculous bubble you ever you're saw.
0: The so, you're, so you're telling me you're the median voter in the country. That's what <laughs> All you're right. right. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's important to get outside your bubble and actually data gets you outside your bubble if you let it.
0: Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think that's like super, we use a book sometimes that, that you know, this uh, Julia Gayle wrote this book, The Scout Mindset and and like just this idea that like you need an accurate map. It doesn't mean yeah. like. If you just agree with whatever public opinion is, you're a windsock. It's not. It's right. not about that. But it's just like you just need to. You need to know. And to your point, to win elections, whichever party you're in, you need like an accurate view of the landscape. I was, like the the Democrats. I think they underestimated um, how popular some of Desantis's early childhood policies were, and then mm. consequently, they were out of position for when he overplayed his hand on extending all that stuff to high school.
1: Right. Like,
0: and like, if, if if you had, if, if you had actually analyzed the public opinion properly, you would have been in a better position to attack. And instead they, you know, the Democrats came off like the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. With some policies that were like DeSantis said like, you know, I've said this before, he has no limiting principle. And so he like staked out some like really unpopular ground. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Um. So, okay. So in your own work, I'm just curious, like when you're working with graduate students and you're like, how does that show up? How are you like, because I think you're, I think the way you describe the situation, but it, it is, everybody gets upset when you both sides, but it is both sides, yeah. like are, are doing all kinds of um, really sort of motivated reasoning around stuff. So like, how do you and your teaching and work with students in your work? Like, how do you guard against that?
1: Um, I mean, the thing about me is that I am like very authentically who I am at all times. And so it's very hard for me not to, it's very hard for me to do anything other than what I just described. Right. So like I'm, you know, we did this controversial topics report, I think last year, it definitely came up with some conclusions that I wish were not true, um, about what people think about LGBT topics and race related topics in the curriculum, but that's what the data showed. Right. And so now there are ways to write about it in, uh, in you know, in ways that, um, I mean, the thing is this, right. So like we put out the report, I think it was pretty straightforward. And I think, you know, it tells the story of the data very accurately. And then it's another thing to then go write a commentary about your concerns about, Yeah, yeah. those conclusions. Right. So like, as an example, one of my former students who's now a researcher at at the center that um, I work with, he wrote a piece about the finding that that parents basically think they should have more control and be able to opt their kids out of lessons they disagree with. And he wrote about how logistically that's unworkable and it would be a disaster for various other reasons as well. And and I fully I didn't co author that with him, but I fully support his argument and agree with him on that topic. Um, But that's different from writing in the report what it is that the data actually show. Right, right. Um, And so, you know, I mean, listen, I have opinions. Clearly, if you follow me on Twitter, you see all my opinions. But I think what you I think what is hopefully also clear is that I'm a straight shooter in terms of what the data show. And I just model that for my students all the time because that's just how I I can't I can't do it any other way than that.
0: Well, it's the sign, I mean, they used to say, like, you know, keeping two opposing ideas in your head is a sign of a first rate mind. I also think, and this is a compliment to you, I think the ability to actually do that and to sort of go between those two roles, like, yeah. is, is, is the sign of a strong mind. And we just don't have enough of it in the, in the sector. And sometimes you just want to know, tell me if it's raining or if it's going to snow I don't really care about your views on the weather. I just want to know what's going on. I don't really care if you like sunny days or rainy days or whatever. Um, and it's harder and harder to sort of get that kind of accurate forecasting, which we need, which brings to the last thing I want to talk to you about before I let you go. You've been really generous of your time. There seems to be a disconnect between what we're seeing show up in a lot of data. So state tests, nape tests, various commercial formative assessments, you know, Map and um, you know curriculum associate stuff and all of that. A huge disconnect between that and what parents think. Yeah. So you study this, and as we now establish, you have a first rate mind. So tell us what the hell is going on. Yeah, it's this really remarkable finding, right? So
1: if you ask experts, for the most part, not all people, but experts are really concerned. You know, we're talking about learning loss. We're talking about decline, historic declines on nape or 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 pick an assessment. Um, and and not just test scores, right? It's other stuff, too. It's behavior and attendance and lots of different things. And then you ask parents about it, and we've done this on our surveys, but other people have found it, too, and, and parents just aren't that concerned. Um, on average, they're not that concerned. In fact, I've seen a few different surveys. I don't know if this is true across all the surveys I've seen, but I've seen a few different surveys that say where parents actually say, my kid's better off than they were before COVID. More parents will say that than say the opposite. And So what is this about? The test score thing, I think, is, is, to some extent, the most obvious of those, which is, how would a parent know that their kid is worse off than they would have been if COVID had not happened, right? That's this unbelievably complex counterfactual that like, how would you know, right? At most, what are you going to see? You might see percentile ranks. And you might, if you went to last year's score, you could see how their percentile change, or you might see like they were above proficient and now they're below proficient if you were paying any attention to that. But it might also be the case that you don't get the test scores until next year anyway, or your kid's taking all these tests during the school year and they send you reports and you have no idea how to make any sense of them. Um, and so I there's, I
0: think, look, there's a bias. Let me just jump in here. And then I want to, I think it's a bias there. People have trouble admitting that they're like on the wrong long distance plan or that they like didn't buy the car that was probably the best car for them to buy. How, I think it's, it's as a parent, it's just incredibly difficult to be like, oh yeah, we made some choices here. Or, or my kids were party to this, yeah, this yeah, set yeah. of public choices. And it's really bad. And it, I just think that's like a hard thing as a parent to bring yourself to.
1: I think that's I think that's true, but I also think, and and we've so right now we're in the middle of this study where so we've been surveying people over and over again about this topic, and now now we're, we actually sampled some of them who differed in their rate their ratings, and we interviewed them to try and understand. Okay, well, what would they tell us in an interview versus what they're telling us um, on the survey? And I think the reality is um, that I mean, yes, you're right. It's hard for parents to say, "Oh, my kid was really harmed," but but. But for the most part they actually think that once kid the vast majority of parents that we've talked to think once their kids got back in school things were pretty much fine right and they got back on track pretty quick and you know they're doing just fine and you know one reason is because they're getting signals from the school that the kid's doing fine right the grades are really high if anything the grade inflation is you know making the grades seem higher there are definitely some parents who will say this really screwed my kid up in various ways i think for the most part, those are non-academic concerns. They are behavioral concerns or child well-being. The kid had mental health issues that cropped up during COVID, things like that. There are some who will say, yeah, my kid's achievement declined. But I just don't think that there's there's not a clear signal to parents about that at all. And uh, and there probably never really was. But certainly, the very, you know, this, this very... Um, important point about how the kid is doing relative to how they would have been doing if it had not happened. Just no one has that kind of information, right? And so why would we expect them to be aware of that? And then why would we expect them to act on that by enrolling their kids in interventions or by pushing for various policy changes? It just doesn't make any sense.
0: Well, it's a little, and even like, it's, it's not just that people don't know, it's being actively communicated the other way, right? Like you're seeing a lot of places say, don't worry about the test scores where, you know, it's, it's, if you go on Amazon, usually it's either number one or number two, the most popular book is this book on street data, which is Uh basically a how-to for how to like clutter up the data landscape so much that parents, that you lose the noise signal ratio just gets out of whack. And and so I think, I do, I do think there's an effort. People perceive some of this as like a public relations problem. Rather than an educational problem, and so that mm-hmm. is showing up as well. And like it's been hard for either elected officials or reformers, or there's aren't as many parent groups. Like Learning Heroes is doing a lot of really good work on this, but just to try to just punch through and say, no, there's a problem here. You got to pay attention. Yeah. And so, like, I, I mean, it's not surprising to me that parents like do feel the way they do because I'm not sure people are really aggressively trying to tell them otherwise.
1: I think I think that's right, but I and I, but then again, I think that. Even if people are telling you otherwise, what you're going to look at probably is your own kid for the most part. And if you're getting the signal from your, you know, as you said, you're you're not getting data that's telling you that your kid is doing any worse than they were. If anything, that you're getting data that they're doing better because their grades are higher. Right. And You're not going to be that concerned. Right. And that I mean, I think that's kind of always been true, but I think it's, you know, it just becomes so important right now because of the damage that was done.
0: Yeah, well look, that's a bit of a depressing note to end on. On the other hand, like it's a, it's a like the fact that like people like you are out there doing like you know that you're trying to do that work and just shed light on what's going on and again, just build like an accurate model of the world for people, whatever they think about it, but just an accurate model of what things actually look like at, at any point in time. Like that like that's encouraging because I know it would be a lot easier for you just to take a dive on a lot of this stuff and so it's really admirable that you are uh, out there doing the kind of work you're doing. The field's lucky to have you. Thank you very much. So I'll end on that. I'll end on that happy note instead. If Jed were here, he'd be very upset with me for not asking about charters and choice. So we'll have to have you back. To uh, okay, we'll have to. We'll have to have you back for a special school choice episode. Sounds good. All right, this is great. Thank you, Morgan.
1: Yeah, nice to talk
0: with you.